I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. (music) Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. This is part one of Hamlet. Um, Yes, it is, as you may have heard, probably the most famous play ever written. Uh, Arguably one of the most famous works of art ever made, but put that out of your mind for the moment. The goal of this podcast is to step back from that as much as we can, sort of dig ourselves into the minutia of the words, and then come at the play as freshly as is possible. Um, so for more on that, you can listen to the big introduction to the series, if you haven't already. The short version of that is that we're trying to make Shakespeare's plays immediate and dramatic and personal again, after a few centuries of total cultural ubiquity and fame have made that really difficult to do. And in order to do that, we need to get back to that moment-to-moment language. I'm going to focus mainly on what's being said, what the words mean, why those specific words, etc., and how it's being said, sort of writerly techniques, sound of the words. So that what is being said and how it's being said are the building blocks of all language, obviously, but especially poetic language. Ezra Pound, the great poet and sometime crazy person, called poetry a centaur, which is a great way to talk about it. Two different halves inseparably joined. So talking about one without the other made absolutely no sense. Now, I'll occasionally suggest my opinion on the third uh, part of that, the why. You know, why characters are choosing to say what they're saying at the moment they're saying it. But once you know the what and the how, I hope you'll take on the why yourself. Because the goal here is finding a personal meaning for you, just like you would for most books you read, most plays you act in and see. And I can't do that for you in a way that means something to you. If you're acting in this play, these have to be the words that you personally would say in the way you would say them. They have to become totally yours instead of the sort of flat, generic way that they're usually performed. The why is the work that readers and performers do. It's making specific choices based on specific words. And to do this job, I'm going to break it up not by lines or by speeches, the way it's usually done, but by complete thoughts. They may occasionally end in the middle of lines of verse. I know, scholars, that's not totally cool, but we're hunting for meaning and sound here. And it's vital that you have to be able to follow the thought processes of these characters, because that's all the plays are. There just isn't much else there. So I'll say a complete thought. I'll go over any of that, what they're saying and how they're saying it stuff. And then I'll move on to the next thought. So before we start on to the ghosts and revenge and whatnot, I just want to give you a little background on this play called Hamlet. Um, It comes sort of originally from a 12th century history of Denmark by a guy with a wonderful name, Saxo Grammaticus. And then a French writer named Belforest shows up probably around 1570 or so and does a version of it. Um, This is probably, by the way, how the Elizabethans knew this story and how Shakespeare found out about it. And the biggest question that everybody's asking is, is there what they call an Ur-Hamlet? It's it's essentially an earlier play uh, version of this story that inspired Shakespeare's version. Because there's references to some Hamlet play throughout the late 1580s and early 1590s. But we have no text surviving that is that original Hamlet. Some people say it's just an earlier version of the play by Shakespeare. But there's an incredible amount of disagreement on what this Ur-Hamlet actually is. Now, regardless, the text that we do have is one of the most difficult texts of any of Shakespeare's plays, not just the words, but the fact that there isn't one text. It comes down in multiple versions. So any modern version, any sort of half-sized book you're reading, has to have made a choice between three or more different options. So first of all, there's what they call the first quarto, 
Um, it's also known as the Bad Quarto, and this comes out at 1603, and it's almost unrecognizable as the modern Hamlet. Um, some people think it was reconstructed from memory by an actor or somebody sat in the audience and copied it down. The speeches are all in different places from what we're used to. There are some different character names, different scenes, lines in different order or completely different from later versions. So this may have been an attempt by a publisher in the time to cash in on a really popular play without paying for it. It may have been an earlier draft by Shakespeare himself, but regardless of what everyone tells you, no one knows what this is from. Uh, It's cool to read compared to most versions we know. And the version we know looks a lot more like what we call the second quarto. That's from 1604. It's much cleaner. It may have come from actual part scripts from the original actors. And then the first folio of 1623, which is the big sort of coffee table book published after Shakespeare dies, it really resembles that second quarto text. It has a few more new lines, a few you know new speeches here and there, which we've kept for the most part in modern versions of it. Now, in terms of when this thing came out, we can date it to somewhere between 1599 and 1602. I know that's really broad. It's really hard to date these things. That does, however, make it one of the earliest plays done at the Globe Theater, most likely. Um, It's probably written just after Julius Caesar. Um, You'll see when we get to a scene in the play, they make jokes about Julius Caesar. It's sort of an in-joke for the company and the audience. And it's one of the first of a string of sort of great tragedies. Um, that Shakespeare wrote after having spent most of the first decade of his life writing comedies and histories. And I got to say, there's a lot of comedy and history in it, actually. So watch out for that part. It's not a pure tragedy. And if you're looking at this play in its own performance time, maybe the most important context to know is this thing called the revenge tragedy. It's a very popular style in this time, really early or late 1580s, based on a Roman model, especially a playwright called Seneca. It almost always involves incredibly gruesome violence. The ghost of the murdered person tends to come to the revenger, uh, who he designates and say, revenge me, and then and then go underneath the stage. The revenger almost always pretends to be insane or actually goes insane. There's almost always some sort of play being performed within a play. Sometimes this is the way in which the revenge is actually carried out. It's in the play itself. And the most famous of these revenge tragedies by far is something called the Spanish Tragedy by a playwright named Kidd. It's hugely popular. Hamlet's conventions are always playing on it. You almost have to know that play. Now, in that play, it's a father who's revenging his son's death instead of the vice versa that we get in Hamlet. Revenge himself is actually a character in the play, and it ends with the revenge on the murderer being carried out during the play within a play. So it it also happens to end with the main character biting out his own tongue and spitting it out on the stage. I know, gruesome violence, right? Now, Shakespeare had already written a Roman-style revenge tragedy by the time he got to Hamlet. He probably wrote it in collaboration with another playwright. And he wrote this sort of during the post-Spanish tragedy craze. This was 10 years earlier. It's a play called Titus Andronicus. It's way more over the top than Hamlet is, or anything else ever written is. Murders, cannibalism, you name it. But Hamlet almost depends on the audience knowing the conventions of the genre. Whereas something like Titus Andronicus is the genre, Hamlet is taking off on it. Every time the play could go in the sort of traditional revenge tragedy direction, it zigzags somewhere unexpected. And that's not really a context we get when we're watching it today. We just sort of watch the play as famous play Hamlet. But actually, it comes out of an artistic movement. Now, it's arguably Shakespeare's most popular play today, and that's not an accident. Partly, it's because it has such a dominant lead role. So if you're a star actor in any time in the last 400 years, you want to program this play so you can play Hamlet. 
And that goes all the way up to today. The most famous actors in the world want to make their mark in this part, regardless of whether they're 20 years old or sometimes 70 years old and completely wrong for it. Now, if you're looking to see this play, I highly recommend finding someone who's putting the play on, on a stage. But there are ways to do that if you're not close to a Hamlet. If you're looking for, for example, film versions, there's a bunch of famous ones. The most famous version is probably this version by Laurence Olivier from the 40s. He directs it and stars in it. I find it a little grating personally. The Freudian stuff goes a little over the top and it's Olivier emoting all over the place. It's not completely without merit. Um, there are also sort of famous versions by Mel Gibson and Kenneth Branagh. I don't find them super exciting. They both have some really good performances kind of hidden in them. My favorite is actually this Russian movie from 1964. It's kind of amazing. It's a real movie movie. The acting's really good. Yes, it's in Russian. There are subtitles. Don't worry. Go find it. It's crazy. And I actually find that there are much more interesting television versions even than film versions because it doesn't fit particularly well into a film's running time or world. And two versions in particular, the one thing they have in common, even though they were filmed 30 years apart, is the same actor in the same part, and that's Patrick Stewart as Claudius. One is from the early 80s with Derek Jacobi as Hamlet, and another um, is much more recent with David Tennant as Hamlet. Patrick Stewart is very different ages in them. He's really good as Claudius, but it's an interesting tie between two really cool versions. There's another version, a sort of taped TV version from a stage play with Richard Burton as Hamlet from 1964 as well. It's pretty cool. He's much too old for the part, but he's a really good actor, so you should totally see it. I happen to think that in part because of how long and weird it is, maybe because of all the references to acting in it, I happen to think that Hamlet works a little better live, but that's totally up to you. Um, there's a Hamlet going on somewhere near you almost certainly right now. It's done constantly. But that's one way to see it without ponying up for a stage version. Okay, now that that's all out of the way, let's get to the play part of the play. So grab your copy of Hamlet, open it to Act 1, Scene 1, and let's begin. Who's there? And that's the first line we hear. Now, if you had come into the theater in around 1600, you wouldn't know that these were guards on Elsinore at midnight. All you would have seen is it's two o'clock in the afternoon. It's probably bright sunshine. And a guy comes out on stage, probably dressed as a soldier of some kind, maybe with a spear. And then another man comes on stage and says, who's there? And he responds, nay, answer me, stand and unfold yourself. Now, what do those mean? Stand isn't stand. He's already standing on his feet, obviously. It's halt, stop. Unfold yourself is a kind of beautiful, poetic way to say, tell me who you are. And so Bernardo responds, long live the king. He's telling him who he is by giving what is essentially the password. And the other man, Francisco, responds, Bernardo? And he comes back, he. So there's been incredible tension established there. We know a little bit about names. We know a little bit about who they are. We know they serve a king. And it's this choppy back and forth. So Francisco probably exhales and says, You come most carefully upon your hour. And carefully is a little different than how we'd use it now. It probably means something like considerately or really promptly. His hour essentially is the time for the guard to be changed. You come upon your time. Um, and Bernardo, uh, because this is a cue script and all he knows is hour is his cue, he says, Tis now struck twelve. Remember what time is it? Tis now struck twelve. Get thee to bed, Francisco. For this relief, much thanks. Tis bitter cold, and I am sick at heart. Now, it's the middle of the summer in London in 1600, in the middle of the day, 
And what he's telling us is essentially the setting, because there's no set on this stage. He says, "'Tis bitter cold, and I am sick at heart." We know something about the temperature. We know something about his state of mind now. He thanks him for this relief, essentially replacing him on duty. And listen to the sound of it. "'Tis bitter cold, and I am sick at heart." It has that kind of biting feeling to it, that parallelism between those two phrases. So we know something more about Francisco. We know something more about the night. And Bernardo asks him, have you had quiet guard? Not a mouse stirring. You know, we think of that as a pretty common phrase, but it's a funny way to respond. Not even a mouse is responding. Well, good night. And he goes off. Oh, if you do meet Horatio and Marcellus, the rivals of my watch... Bid them make haste. So we know there's other people coming. Rivals doesn't mean like his enemies or the people he's worried are going to beat him. In this case, it's something like partners or associates, people who are going to do the watch with me. And he says, bid them make haste. Ask them to hurry up. It means that Bernardo is nervous too. We have some nervous guards out here. And that's what we know right now. And is it on cue? Because essentially this probably is their cue. Francisco says, I think I hear them. Stand, ho! Who's there? And there's that word stand again. It means halt, stop. Again, they are already standing. Who is there? And it turns out, of course, it's Horatio and Marcellus. Now, if your copy has a stage direction that says enter Horatio and Marcellus, you might as well just cross that off because there were no stage directions in the original versions of these. We're going by what the people say. And so what do Horatio and Marcellus respond? Friends to this ground. And then Marcellus adds, and liegemen to the Dane. So what's the ground? Obviously, Horatio isn't a friend of the earth. He's a friend of this ground, this country, Denmark. And then Marcellus is very quick to add, and, by the way, liegeman to the Dane. Liegeman is someone who's sworn allegiance. And the Dane isn't just some random Danish person. In this case, it's the king of Denmark. So Horatio, who's just kind of a regular guy, says, friends to this ground. You know, we're friendly to this country. Don't shoot us. Um, but Marcellus, who is a soldier, adds, we're liegemen to the Dane. We've sworn allegiance. And here are the parallelism of their sound. Horatio says, friends to this ground. And Marcellus immediately adds, and liegemen to the Dane. It's a complete verse line. So you know that Marcellus is jumping right on top of Horatio's line so that nothing happens to them. And Francisco, who has been relieved by the fact that it's actually them, says, give you good night. And which is short, by the way, for may God give you a good night. You'll hear this sometimes. And Marcellus responds, Oh, farewell, honest soldier. Who hath relieved you? Francisco says, Bernardo hath my place. And repeats, give you good night. This is a jumpy guy. They're all pretty jumpy. They're all asking, who's relieving you? Is it time for me to go? Have you seen anything? They are worried. And Marcellus greets him. Hello, Bernardo. Bernardo starts to respond, say. And then he says, what? Is Horatio there? Hala, by the way, uh, doesn't mean what, we, what it would mean in our modern context. It's something sort of from a French phrase. It essentially means hello. It's a kind of informal way of saying hello. So Bernardo asks, what? Is Horatio there? And Horatio, who, as you will see, is a student and enjoys playing with words a little bit, says a piece of him, which is a sort of snarky way to respond. And Bernardo says, welcome, Horatio. Welcome, good Marcellus. And Marcellus immediately, since he's just arrived on the scene, asks, what? Has this thing appeared again tonight? And that, for an audience, is exciting, because before it was just a bunch of soldiers greeting each other, which is good for about two minutes, but then we get bored. And thing is an incredibly loaded word to choose. He doesn't say ghost. He doesn't say uh, late king of Denmark or anything like that. He says, 
has this thing appeared again tonight? And Bernardo says, I have seen nothing. Now, he could be saying, I have seen no thing, which would be a kind of cute way to put it. Now, Bernardo has also been on guard for about 40 seconds at this point, but we also know that Francisco hasn't seen anything. And Marcellus comes back to him. In probably the longest speech we've had so far, he says, Horatio says, "'Tis but our fantasy, and will not let belief take hold of him, touching this dreaded sight, twice seen of us." So fantasy here isn't like the thing you dream of. It's literally your imagination, a thing you've imagined, you've fancied up, and will not let belief take hold of him. It's an incredibly tactile way to talk about belief, literally belief grabbing him, touching this dreaded sight, twice seen of us. Touching here isn't like take hold. It really means concerning or related to uh, this dreaded sight, this sight that we're afraid of, twice seen of, seen by us. Uh, again, we haven't named it yet. All we've said is this dreaded sight, um, this thing. It is still a mystery to the audience, if not for the actual people talking. So he continues, Therefore, I have entreated him along with us to watch the minutes of this night, that if again this apparition come, he may approve our eyes and speak to it. So from that first part, where he talks about Horatio not believing them, therefore, so I have entreated him along. I've asked him to come along with us to watch the minutes of this night. Now, this is something that Shakespeare does all the time to adjust the sound of the words. What it really means is to watch the minutes of this night with us. But instead, he starts with us to watch the minutes of this night so that he can end on that word night instead of ending on the weaker with us. And watch the minutes means to sort of stay awake and observe for the whole night, almost as though you're watching the minute hand on a clock go around. Watch again means to stay awake. They're going to use this a lot. So he continues, that if again this apparition come, he may approve our eyes and speak to it. Now, this is a much stranger way to say it than just, you know, confirm what we've seen. He says, approve our eyes. It literally means to say that what we saw is true. And finally, he's named what this thing is. He said, this apparition. Again, still not specific, but something that has appeared. And of course, since it's a Q script, Horatio comes back, tush, tush, twill not appear. He's called it an apparition, and then Horatio says, it'll not, it will not appear. Tush here, you know, it's often used as sort of old-timey word, but it's almost literally a sound. Twill not appear. We still use that sound. Now, Bernardo comes back. We haven't heard from him in a little while. And he essentially takes up the mantle from Marcellus. And he says to Horatio, sit down a while and let us once again assail your ears that are so fortified against our story what we two knights have seen. Now, he's talking in language that is very much soldier's language. Listen to the words he uses. Assail your ears, ears that are so fortified against our story. Assail means literally attack, but he's using it in the sense of persuade, um, that are so fortified against our story. They're disbelieving our story, but what literally means is that we've like stre you've strengthened it against an attack. So he's using soldierly language here. And then listen to the sound of that last line, what we two knights have seen. So it's not the usual da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's what we two knights have seen. It's two strong syllable for two knights. So not just one knight. It wasn't just something we imagined. We've seen it twice before. So that's more new information. And Horatio, because that's a short line, jumps onto it. What we two knights have seen, and Horatio immediately finishes that verse line. Well, sit we down. So he jumps on the end of it. And let us hear Bernardo speak of this. So they sit down. We know that. That's essentially a stage direction in the language. 
So Bernardo's going to start. And the entire audience is concentrated. We're finally going to know what this thing is that has been haunting them. It's an apparition. It's a thing. That's all we know. So Bernardo starts. Last night of all, when yon same star that's westward from the pole had made his course to illumine that part of heaven where now it burns, Marcellus and myself, the bell then beating one, and immediately the ghost enters. It's an amazing line. So let's go back for just a second and make sure we get all the words there. Last night of all uh, literally means just last night, um, when yon same star that's westward from the pole, the pole is sort of like the Dane here. The Dane is the king of Denmark. The pole is the pole star, the North Star, Polaris. Um, had made his course to illumine that part of heaven, had followed his path to, to essentially brighten with his starshine that part of heaven where now it burns. So basically, last night, just about this time, Marcellus and myself, the bell then beating one, just when the bell was striking one. So we knew it was midnight before, and now it sounds like it's almost one. He may be messing with time. But listen to how poetic-sounding that language is, had made his course to illumine that part of heaven where now it burns. It's very, um, it's very consciously poetic language. In a sense, you know, Shakespeare's hypnotizing the audience a little bit here. He's saying, now listen closely, listen closely, listen closely. And this is an old magician's trick. You try to get somebody to pay attention to something as hard as possible, and then the important thing is happening somewhere else entirely. So just as they're sitting down, he has this big speech, this poetic speech, the language is really lulling you into a false sense of security, and immediately on the other side of the stage, a ghost enters. And Marcellus yells, peace, break the off, look where it comes again. And break off here means stop talking. (laughs) So we immediately see this thing they've been talking about. It's a ghost. It's a very dignified ghost in full armor. That's what we know about it now. And Bernardo gives us the first piece of information that we know. In the same figure, like the king that's dead. Oh my God, that's huge, right? Figure here means shape or appearance. He looks just like the dead king. And this is the first time we know that there's a dead king in this play. And Marcellus, who's losing his mind right now, says to Horatio, Thou art a scholar, speak to it, Horatio. So now we've learned a few new things just in this line. We've learned that Horatio is a scholar. We knew a little bit from how he talked, but that's something that Marcellus is giving to it. We also have a sense that maybe this is why they invited Horatio along in the first place, that maybe you need to speak to it in Latin or very smartly or something. And Bernardo says, Looks it not like the king? Mark it, Horatio. Now, mark here means... um, you know, scrutinize it, pay really close attention to it. And Horatio comes back, most like, it harrows me with fear and wonder. And harrows is a really loaded word to choose because a harrow is a, it's a farming term. It's a sort of sharp bladed tool that you would use to break up and pulverize the soil when you were getting it ready for planting. So if you were living in the time when this was written, you would know exactly what a harrow is. And using it as a verb is a pretty cool way to bring it out here. So his soul is literally being chopped to pieces by seeing this. And then Bernardo moves it forward. It would be spoke to. Marcellus jumps right on to end that line. Question it, Horatio. So you have these fast lines. The pace has really been sped up here after you were lulled into a false sense of security by that beautiful, long, poetic speech. So immediately, it's it's the, all eyes are turning to Horatio because you have this ghost on one side of the stage and these scared guys on the other side. And Horatio comes out and says, What art thou that usurps this time of night together with that fair and warlike form in which the majesty of buried Denmark did sometimes march? This is very sort of long poetic language, but he uses a really interesting verb here. He says, usurpsed. 
it's a very loaded word when it comes to kings. It's a very loaded word in this play. I mean, it literally means taking possession of unjustly, stealing from. So just as he was usurped, this time of night is being usurped by the appearance of a ghost, someone who should not be here, who should be dead. And not only is he usurping this time of night, but he's usurping the fair, the beautiful and warlike form in which the majesty of buried Denmark did sometimes march. So he he's usurping the appearance of the king that's dead. He doesn't believe that he's the actual king. That would be crazy. He's asking why this ghost is taking on the form of something that's buried. Again, when he says Denmark here, he means the king of Denmark. And when he says sometimes, it doesn't mean like, well, he sometimes marched like this. It means once. He used to march like this before he died, obviously. That line ends in a very short line and then immediately comes back with, by heaven, I charge thee speak. Charge here means command. I demand that you speak. And it's a short, really punchy line. And then Marcella says, it is offended. How does he know this? Because it's it's starting to leave. It's turned around, probably. Again, this is a stage direction we get from the language. And Bernardo gives it right to us. See, it stalks away. You know, stalks is more like marches or sort of walks stiffly away. It's giving the stage direction to the actor playing the ghost. Horatio says, stay, speak, speak. I charge thee, speak. Again, these choppy little lines. And he says, charge again. Uh, I charge thee, speak. He said in the previous line, you know, I order you to speak. And then Marcellus says, tis gone and will not answer. So we know the ghost has left the stage now. This is incredibly useful for someone who's staging the play. And have you noticed that Marcellus's line is not a full verse line? Tis gone and will not answer. There should be another few syllables there. Because what's filling those last few syllables is silence. The silence of having something crazy just happen to them. And everyone is quiet. And then Bernardo turns to Horatio and says, How now, Horatio? You tremble and look pale. Um, There's a little bit of irony here, as though Horatio has finally seen the thing they were promising he was going to see when he didn't believe them. Um, He's also giving a sort of acting note to the actor playing Horatio. You tremble and look pale. He has to do that before the line shows up. And he hits him again. Is not this something more than fantasy? Remember we heard that line earlier about Horatio thinks tis but our fantasy? He's deliberately using that word fantasy again. Um, Isn't this something more than just something we imagined? What think you, aunt? What do you think about this? Uh, Notice how it's shortened. It's shortened for sound. So it's not on it, two syllables. It's aunt, one syllable. It's a very deliberate, hard end. And Horatio comes back. Before my God, I might not disbelieve without the sensible and true avouch of mine own eyes. Before here means sort of like, I swear to my God without the sensible and true avouch. Sensible isn't like, oh, those are some sensible shoes. No, sensible here means ability to be felt by the senses. Avouch is like the testimony, the sort of guarantee in his eyes. Because remember, his his ears were not working. He wasn't believing. They had to assail his ears. It's his eyes that are really proving it to him. So the, this, the sense of sight is what he believes of mine own eyes. And then Marcellus comes right on to end that line with, is it not like the king? Um, He's jumping on the end of Horatio's line on purpose to give it that sense of momentum. And Horatio comes back, as thou art to thyself. Yes, it's like the king. It's exactly as much like the king as you are to yourself. So not only does he look like him, he seems like he is him. And again, it's another short line. Is it not like the king? As thou art to thyself. So these short lines, which implies there's some silence going on there. And then Horatio starts up. And here is really where the rhythm of the scene changes. We're going to have a lot more long lines. We're going to have longer speeches. 
Horatio launches in with a story that we're for us to listen to. It's as much for us as it is for the guys on stage. This is what they call exposition. And he says, such was the very armor he had on when he, the ambitious Norway, combated. Who's Norway? He was fighting Norway. Again, Norway here is the king of Norway, just like Denmark is the king of Denmark. And we know that Norway was ambitious. We knew there was a fight between Denmark and Norway at some point in the past. And we know that this is the armor that the king of Denmark was wearing when he fought Norway. So frowned he once when, in an angry parl, he smote the sledded poleaxe on the ice. So yeah, that was the armor he was wearing. And not only that, the frown he had on just now is exactly like the frown he had when in an angry parl. And parl here is essentially like a negotiation, a meeting. It really means to talk. Um, so there was apparently an angry parl. They were talking angrily. And he smote, he struck down the sledded Polacks on the ice. He was fighting the Polish on the ice. Now, some people say the word Polacks here, in addition to being a little bit of a racial slur these days, is actually poleaxe, which is a kind of spear. But then how would a poleaxe be sledded? I think they were Polish people on sleds. They were on the ice and he struck them down during a bad moment in a negotiation. But that was the frown he was wearing. So clearly this is a guy who is not feeling well, this ghost, because he's acting just like he did when something violent was about to happen. And then we get this wonderful sort of add on. Tis strange, Horatio says. Yeah, no kidding, buddy. It's strange. And Marcellus comes in thus twice before and jump at this dead hour. With Marshal Stock hath he gone by our watch. So thus, exactly like this, twice before, and jump exactly at this dead hour. Dead is an incredibly wonderful adjective to choose here. We're going to see it later on in the next scene when they talk about the dead waste in middle of the night. At this dead hour, this incredibly quiet, silent, death-like hour. With Marshal Stock, military march, there's that word stock again, hath he gone by our watch. Um, that place where we were staying up watching all night. So it's this very loaded, scary language. And Horatio essentially continues Marcellus's line. So with Marshall Stock, hath he gone by our watch? And Horatio jumps right in, in what particular thought to work, I know not. But in the gross and scope of my opinion, this bodes some strange eruption to our state. And thought to work here really means like what sort of course of thinking, sort of what uh, reason he has for doing this. What is this ghost thinking that he goes by with this martial stock at the middle of the night twice before, so three times now? But, and this is really important, in the gross and scope of my opinion, this bodes some strange eruption to our state. Gross and scope here essentially means something like in the sort of general range, the broad drift. Um, gross is usually refers to large. This is a weird technique that you'll sometimes see in this play and others by Shakespeare called hendiades. It's, uh, it's where you take two words and you give them essentially one meaning. So gross and scope, you could sort of combine it into the gross scope, the large drift of my opinion. But Shakespeare likes to separate them out because they sound cooler that way. The gross and scope, they have those long O sounds in them. And then this bodes some strange eruption to our state. Eruption essentially means something like disturbance, but I would argue it's an incredibly important thematic word in this play. We're going to see this throughout the play. It's one of the few sort of language themes I'll point out to you. But an eruption, think of what an eruption is. It's essentially something terrible that bubbles up from the ground. And this kind of language is going to be all over the play. You're going to see a lot of language about a, an apparently normal surface and something terrible underneath it that either comes up through it or stays hidden underneath it. So this idea of hiding what is seen and what is not seen, 
what is above and what is underneath is going to be all over the place. So that's just a nice sort of like hint to you for things to watch out for. And then Marcellus is going to go into uh, even more exposition. And he's going to essentially change the subject because, you know, Horatio's mentioned this bodes some strange eruption to our state. This hints that something bad is going to happen in our country. And Marcellus says, well, interesting you should mention that. Something bad is already happening in our country. What is going on? He says to him, good now, sit down and tell me, he that knows, why this same strict and most observant watch so nightly toils the subject of the land, and why such daily cast of brazen cannon and foreign mart for implement of war, why such impressive shipwrights whose sore task does not divide the Sunday from the week, And what you'll see there is he's essentially making a list of things that are happening. And I think, you know, if an actor runs over this or you run over this in reading it, you can kind of miss that a lot has changed in the in the sound of the language and in the subject of the language. Good now. Great. Terrific. We know that. Sit down. Tell me he that knows. There's something a little snarky about he that knows, but it tells us a little something more about Horatio. Tell me why this same strict and most observant watch uh, watch here again is is sort of sleeplessness, staying awake, wakefulness. So nightly toils the subject of the land. Toils here means sets to work, employs. The subject are, is like the subjects, the inhabitants. So why are every night the subjects of the land are being kept up to work strictly and observantly? And not only that, why such daily cast of brazen cannon? Why every day? So we've already been through nightly, daily. The casting, you know, the the molding of metal is formed into brazen cannons, brass cannons, and not only that, foreign mart, foreign trade or spending for implements of war. So we're we're making uh, war weapons ourselves, and we're also sending out to spend money on weapons from somewhere else. Why such impressive shipwrights? He continues, why are we um, forcing into labor shipwrights, people who build ships, whose sore task, whose heavy sort of serious job does not divide the Sunday from the week. In other words, doesn't um, let us have even one day off, Sunday being, you know, the holy day of rest. But this is not dividing the Sunday from the week. And and look at the language. It's this is happening. And also this is happening. And by the way, this is happening. So he's making this long list. And at the end of that, he says, what might be toward that this sweaty haste doth make the night joint labor with the day? So toward here means... Um, uh, sort of about to happen, impending, forthcoming, that this sweaty haste, it's a great adjective to describe haste. It, you really feel how fast everyone's working, how much they're trying to catch up. Doth make the night joint laborer with the day. Essentially, the night and day are working as though there's no there's no difference uh, between them. Uh, joint labor literally means co-worker. So the night and day are working alongside each other. And he says, who is it that can inform me? Who is it that can inform me? Horatio ends his line. Again, these are full verse lines, full iambic verse lines. So whenever one is short, someone has a chance to finish it. Who is it that can inform me? That can I, says Horatio. So suddenly we know something more about Horatio. He's been following this a little. He's been following the international politics. And of course, after that really definitive statement, that can I, those monosyllables, he qualifies that. At least the whisper goes so. And it's a it's an interesting way to say rumor, the whisper, but you get a much clearer sense of what's going on. People are whispering all over about what's happening between these countries. It's sort of like Scandinavian telephone games. And he starts on in the story. Our last king, whose image even but now appeared to us, was, as you know, by Fortinbras of Norway, thereto pricked on by a most emulate pride, dared to the combat. Okay, that's a really long sentence with a lot of sort of subheadings. 
So the the clearest version of it is our last king was by Fortinbras of Norway, dared to the combat. But there's all these little um, things happening in between those lines. Our last king, who, by the way, his image just recently appeared to us, was, as you know, because this is a famous story, by Fortinbras of Norway, the king of Norway. We're going to hear about another Fortinbras, but this is um, his father, Fortinbras, king of Norway. And Fortinbras, king of Norway, who was pricked on by a most emulate pride. Pricked on is a, is a great verb. It literally is, though... It's as though someone was standing behind him with a spear in his back going, come on, guy, you can do it. Because he was there too, um, pricked on to do it, urged on to do it by a most emulate pride. Emulate here is like jealous, you know, sort of wanting to match the other king. He wanted to be like old King Hamlet of, of Denmark. So he was pricked on by that pride. Um, so anyway, Fortinbras of Norway dared him to the combat, challenged him to single combat. So essentially the two kings are going to fight and whoever wins gets the land. So in that combat, in which our valiant Hamlet, for so this side of our known world esteemed him, did slay this Fortinbras. So that was the result of that combat. This side of our known world esteems him. Esteemed means valued or rated him. I think that essentially what that means is valiant. Uh, everybody on the, our side of the world said he was valiant. Did slay this Fortinbras, who, by a sealed compact, well ratified by law and heraldry, did forfeit with his life all those his lands which he stood seized of to the conqueror. Still, still with us here? It's a long thought. So by a sealed compact, a compact is essentially an agreement or a contract. And sealed means that they sort of both signed it and agreed upon it. Well ratified by law and heraldry. Um, ratified means sort of sanctioned by all the the laws of fighting knights, really, heraldry. Um, so if you're going to have this fight, know that it was totally legal. All the laws of fighting were behind it. And so Fortinbras did forfeit with his life all those his lands, which he stood seized of to the conqueror. So when he died, when old Hamlet killed him, he gave up all the lands which he had see, which he stood seized of, which he owned essentially to the conqueror. In other words, old Hamlet. So when he lost to Hamlet, he gave up the right to all of his lands. Against the which, a moiety competent was gauged by our king, which had returned to the inheritance of Fortinbras had he been vanquisher, as by the same covenant and carriage of the article designed, his fell to Hamlet. So we've already heard what Fortinbras lost by losing to old King Hamlet, and now we know what Hamlet would have lost. So a moiety competent here means sort of an equivalent piece. Against Fortinbras, old Hamlet was gauged by our king. So this, this equal piece was wagered, essentially, was what gauged means which had returned, which would have returned to the inheritance of Fortinbras, which would have been Fortinbras's, had he been vanquisher, if he had beaten Hamlet, as by the same covenant, according to that same agreement, and carriage of the article designed, and carrying out of the agreement that they agreed upon, the article designed, his fell to Hamlet. You know, his property became Hamlet. So this is essentially what would have happened if Hamlet had lost. In other words, what he's saying is this was all fair and square. They both had a lot to lose, but Hamlet won. So that's a little bit of exposition. It's a lot of exposition. But the clearer you can make that, the better. His felt to Hamlet. Now, sir, we're about to turn into what this has to do with everything. Now, sir, young Fortinbras, of unimproved metal hot and full, hath in the skirts of Norway here and there, sharked up a list of lawless resolutes for food and diet to some enterprise that hath a stomach in it, which is no other, as it doth well appear unto our state, but to recover of us by strong hand and terms compulsory those foresaid lands so by his father lost. Oh, look, another incredibly long sentence, but let's follow all the logic through it. Young Fortinbras, so the son of the old king who was killed by old Hamlet, 
of unimproved metal. Unimproved is something like undisciplined. It could also mean something like unproven, but he's, he's young. Metal, um, not in the sense of like iron, but uh, something like his character, his disposition. Hot and full here could be more of that Hendiades thing we were talking about before. Uh, it could mean something more like hotly full or full of hotness, just uh, very eager to go make his mark on the world, but not tested in any way. Half in the skirts of Norway, he has in the sort of outskirts of Norway, the bad parts of Norway. Uh, skirts is a wonderful way to talk about it, as though it's just like at the bottom of the skirt of Norway. Here and there, you know, just around. Sharked up a list. This is one of my favorite verbs in all of Shakespeare. Sharked up. Think about the way a shark eats. You know, sort of gathered up quickly, indiscriminately, almost like a shark opening its mouth and just hoping to get something. Sharked up a list. Um, list here isn't like, well, there's Steve from Norway and Jurgen and that other guy. Um, list here is, is more like troops um, of lawless resolutes. Resolutes are people who are resolute. They're sort of grim and determined men. Not necessarily the guys you would want in your army. They're lawless. We know about that about them. For food and diet. So there's two ways to read this. Um, some of these things have different meanings. One is that he is just paying them in sort of food and supplies. Um, so that's all they're getting paid. But they're excited to go fight. And another way to put it is a much more poetic way, which is that they are the food to his enterprise. Essentially, he's using them as cannon fodder. They're going to be eaten up by this war that he's starting for no particular reason to some enterprise that hath a stomach in it. And obviously this is very poetic because no enterprise has an actual stomach. But stomach here can mean essentially like an exercise of courage. They're excited because it it seems like it has a real stomach in it, um, which is no other but to recover of us by strong hand. Uh, but there's that little parenthetical there, which is no other as it doth well appear unto our state, since it appears that way to the leaders or the government of our country, since they've heard about this. Um, it's no other way but to recover of us by strong hand and terms compulsory those foresaid lands so by his father lost. So recover of us means recover from us by strong hand and terms compulsory. So terms are things that involve compulsion or force, compulsory terms, and strong hands, not just one strong hand, but it's by force in every way. Those foresaid lands, those lands we were talking about before, so by his father lost. So that's a really long sentence, but it, it ends mid-line so that we can come into the next part. And this, I take it, is the main motive of our preparations, the source of this our watch, and the chief head of this post-haste and rummage in the land. So he finishes with a list of his own to respond to that list we heard before of all the things that are happening in the land. So A, it's the main motive of our preparations, the main motivator, the reason for all these preparations we're making in the middle of the night. The source of this, our watch, the reason we're staying up in the middle of the night, and the chief head of this post-haste and rummage in the land. Head here is sort of like the origin, the source. Um, it's not like a human head. It's like a fountainhead, like where a spring begins. The chief head, the main origin of this post-haste and rummage in the land. Post-haste means something like sort of speed of preparation, the fact that we're working so fast. Post comes from you know, having to travel with great speed, usually to bring some kind of mail. And rummage is sort of like commotion or bustle or turmoil, uh, sort of like that word to rummage around in. So that's where all this is coming from. And it ends very definitively. After those long speeches, we get these sort of three or four clear reasons. And it's a very impressive speech. And Bernardo responds, I think it'd be no other, but even so. Yeah, I think it's nothing else, but just exactly what you've just said. Um, 
Well may it sort that this portentous figure comes armed through our watch, so like the king that was and is the question of these wars. And he says, well, yeah, it, it may well happen, sort, is sort of like happen or be appropriate, that this portentous figure, this foreboding or ominous or sort of threatening of weird future events, this figure who uh, bodes no good, comes armed, so comes with all of his armor and weapons on through our watch, so like the king, so resembling the king that was and is the question of the wars. Not only was he, but he still is the subject of these wars between Denmark and Norway. So of course this ghost is appearing because what's happening in the state right now is that they're debating an old fight that he had. And Horatio is going to come and take us off into a more poetic philosophical area. He says, a mote it is to trouble the mind's eye. Um, we're going to see the phrase mind's eye a lot here. It's a It's a pretty weird phrase. We use it a lot now. But think about how weird that is, the idea that the mind itself has an eye and can see things, almost like when you're dreaming. Mote here is a speck. Um, you see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it gets used. Shakespeare likes to use it a lot. But, you know, he's describing the ghost and all this going on as a sort of speck in the eye of the mind, a thing that troubles the mind's eye because it's uh, getting in it and sort of making the mind's eye tear up, if you can use that expression. And then he goes into a story that relates to it. In the most high and palmy state of Rome, a little ere the mightiest Julius fell, the graves stood tenantless, and the sheeted dead didn't squeak and gibber in the Roman streets. Uh, this is probably the sole appearance of zombies in Shakespeare's plays. Um, you'll notice it's a reference to Julius Caesar, which is probably playing, you know, the next day at the Globe Theater because he had just premiered it. In the most high and palmy state of Rome, palmy is flourishing like a palm tree. So in other words, uh, branching out and doing well. So this is, you know, Rome was doing great at this time. A little later, the mightiest Julius fell just before Julius Caesar died. The graves stood tenantless. Tenant, in other words, like without their tenants, like an empty apartment. The people who should have been buried in the grave were not there. And the sheeted dead, they were put in sheets like shrouds, did squeak and gibber in the Roman streets. I love that language because it's so it's so auditory. You can just hear them squeaking and gibbering, gibbering something like babbling. The dead people still in their sheets are getting up and they're walking around and making weird noises in the Roman streets. If you read um, Julius Caesar or you see the play, there there's the night before Julius Caesar is about to be killed. And there's these terrible storms going on. I don't think there's any zombies actually in it, but they certainly talk about the dead. And then he adds on more things that are happening. As stars with trains of fire and dews of blood, disasters in the sun, and the moist star upon whose influence Neptune's empire stands was sick almost to doomsday with eclipse. So not only do we have the zombies in the streets, we have the stars with trains of fire, uh, almost like a bridal train. They have their, they have trails of fire, comets essentially, which have always been bad news and bad omens dews of blood. So instead of dew appearing on the grass, you have dew of blood. Disasters in the sun, which is a wonderful phrase. Disaster here literally means in inauspicious appearances. So weird things that denote bad things to come. It's not just like natural disasters. It's like strange things happening in the, in the face of the sun. And the moist star, the moist star here is the moon upon whose influence Neptune's empire stands because Neptune, the you know, the old king of the sea. Stands here means depends, because this is the star, the moon, that controls Neptune's empire, the tides. So the moon was sick almost to doomsday with eclipse. So the idea of the moon being sick is kind of great. But to doomsday, because, you know, when the earth was about to end and everything bad was going to go down, 
the moon was supposed to be swallowed up. So it was as though the eclipse had turned it to a, a sense of doomsday in Rome. Um, and he continues, and even the like precursive fierce events as harbingers preceding still the fates and prologue to the omen coming on have heaven and earth together demonstrated unto our climature and countrymen. So after that weird story about Rome, where are you going, Horatio? Um, he turns it to what's going on with them in that moment. And even the like, even the same precurse, um, precurse here means something like foreshadowing of fierce events. It's a wonderful way to put it. Fierce here means violent or extreme events as harbingers preceding still the fates. Uh, a harbinger is like a, a herald, someone who goes before to announce what's about to happen. These events are like messengers that come before. Still here means always. They always come before these fates, these fateful events. Bad things are always preceded by these warnings. So they are harbingers, but also prologue to the omen coming on. A prologue is literally someone who comes out at the beginning of a play and says what's about to happen. So it's a very stagey term. Um, the omen in the sense of ominous means an upcoming disaster. So this this disaster is about to happen. It's coming on. So even this, these same things have heaven and earth together demonstrated unto our climature and countrymen. So heaven and earth are getting together to manifest it, to show our climature, our region, our land and countrymen, our fellow Danes here. So not only did this happen in Rome, but the same kind of thing is happening now to us. And of course, after this long speech with these very full lines, very poetical that lulls us back, who's back but the ghost? Because Shakespeare pulls that same gag twice. And watch what happens to Horatio's language. So he had these long lines, this very poetic sort of soft language, and then his language turns all choppy. But soft, behold, lo, where it comes again. He's seen the ghost, and he's making it apparent in his language. Soft, it can mean listen, but it can also mean wait. Uh, hold on, forget about my story. Behold, look over there, lo, uh, which is another sort of version of behold. You've heard that phrase, lo and behold. See where it comes again. He says, I'll cross it, though it blast me. I'll cross it here doesn't mean he's going to like make the sign of the cross, although I've seen people do that. Cross means he's going to move to intercept it. He's going to go stand in its way, though it blasts me, even if it destroys me, he says. Um, it's very brave for a kind of nerdy scholar like Horatio. Um, and he says, stay illusion. Um, the language, again, is very choppy. He comes right at the end of his line, stay illusion. Hey, ghost, stop. If thou hast any sound or use of voice, speak to me. So if you can talk in any way, speak to me, and nothing. If there be any good thing to be done that may to thee do ease and grace to me, speak to me. So it's that same form again. He says his line, and he ends with speak to me. If there be any good thing to be done that may to thee do ease and grace to me, that may relieve you, essentially, that may cause you relief, do ease, and, and this is a little harder to get, that may also do grace to me. Um, that may do good or salvation to me. If there's any good thing I can do that will help you and also make things good for me, speak to me. Nothing. And then he continues, If thou art privy to thy country's fate, which happily foreknowing may avoid, oh, speak. Privy here means something like if you're sort of privately aware of your country's fate, about what's going to happen to your country in the future. Happily is one of the least understood words that Shakespeare uses because it's changed almost 100% in its usage since his time. Happily can mean something like perhaps or fortunately. Here it means something like perhaps, maybe, which happily foreknowing may avoid. So if there's something that's going to happen to your country 
And maybe if we know it in advance, that will stop it. That's why you're here. Oh, speak. Um, so you've heard that, that sort of one, two, three rhythm. Speak to me, speak to me. Oh, speak. And nothing again. Or if thou hast uphoarded in thy life extorted treasure in the womb of earth, for which they say you spirits oft walk in death, speak of it. Uphoarded means hoarded up, you know, amassed. If you have some sort of treasure, uh, extorted treasure is usually something like ill-gotten. Essentially, if you were a pirate and you hid your buried treasure in the womb of earth, which is a great way to talk about burying it in the earth, for which they say you spirits oft walk in death. So there was some tradition that if a ghost had buried treasure and it was ill-gotten, that he had to show somebody where it was in order to finally get out of purgatory and go to heaven or hell. Speak of it. So we have another speak of it. Stay and speak. Stop it, Marcellus. So it starts going away. That's all we know from his language. Marcellus comes back. Shall I strike at it with my partisan? There's something a little snarky about that, too, because what am I going to do? Kill a ghost with my spear? A partisan is essentially like a long-handled spear. And Horatio says, do if it will not stand. There's that word stand again, which means halt or stop. It's like, yeah, strike at it with your partisan, man. And Bernardo says, tis here. Horatio says, tis here. Marcellus says, tis gone. Which is a wonderful line where they're all screaming at various points of the stage. Something that uh, performances will sometimes do about this is they'll have a few different actors playing the ghost uh, in the same costume so that they can have him sort of appear at various different places. But the sense you get from that language is he's jumping all over the place. And you have that choppy language and it ends and the ghost is gone. Is he going to come back? We have no idea. But there's silence. And Marcella says, we do it wrong being so majestical to offer it the show of violence. I think one sense you get from this is that they're the ones who are being majestical. No, it's the majestical one. So we're doing it wrong because it's so majestical to offer it the show of violence. You can't just do the show of violence because it is it is majestical. It is a king's ghost. For it is as the air, invulnerable, and our vein blows, malicious mockery. It's made out of the same thing as the air. It's, it's invulnerable. It can't be hurt. Vein here isn't like he really likes how his hair looks. Vain is ineffective, like the blows will never work. Malicious mockery is a really cool phrase because it doesn't mean mockery that is malicious. It means the mockery of malice. In other words, it's just like a show of violence. It's that same phrase we've used before. We're making mockery of what should be true malice. So here was one of the greatest warriors in the world, and we're just kind of poking at it badly. Bernardo says, it was about to speak when the cock crew... So the cock here is a rooster, obviously. Crew means crowed. And if you weren't reading modern stage directions, you wouldn't know that would have happened, but it's in the language of the place. You have to sort of go back and say, well, where is it that that rooster crows? Usually it's right up at that point during Horatio's long speech where he says, stay and speak. And then he says, stop it, Marcellus. So stop it, Marcellus indicates to me that that's where the rooster crows and the ghost leaves almost immediately. But that's new, it's new information to us if all we're hearing is the language. It just means there's some guy off stage making a rooster crow. Either that or they had to find some local rooster and get it to crow on time, but that probably didn't happen. It was very low tech. Um, so it was about to speak when the cock crew, and then Horatio picks it up and says, and then it started like a guilty thing. So started has a very different sense than the one we use. It means um, was startled, should have fled. Um, you know, with a start is a phrase we sometimes use. Like a guilty thing upon a fearful summons. They go back to that word thing again, which is sort of great to come back to it full circle at the end of this scene. A fearful summons. A summons here is something like a legal summons, as though you were being called to court. 
um, which is an interesting way to talk about purgatory, where he's going to. In a sense, you are you are being punished and you're being called back to that, but you've been summoned from somewhere else. I have heard the cock that is the trumpet to the morn doth with his lofty and shrill-sounding throat awake the god of day, and at his warning, whether in sea or fire, in earth or air, the extravagant and erring spirit hies to his confine. So Horatio, as he is wont to do, comes back and says. Uh, something a little more on the philosophical side, based on his knowledge. So I've heard that this rooster, which is the trumpet to the morn, a very poetic phrase, the thing that announces that morning is about to happen, doth with his lofty and shrill-sounding throat, lofty here means high, so he has a very high-sounding voice, awake the god of day, and at his warning, at that trumpet warning, whether in sea or fire, in earth or air, so in other words, in wherever these ghosts are going off to, the extravagant and erring spirit. Extravagant and erring is maybe another hendiatus. It's one of those combinations like extravagantly erring. Erring here isn't like making a mistake. It's much more like wandering. Sometimes you'll hear about like knights being errant or like an errant pitch, wandering where it should not be, extravagant going wildly off course. The spirit highs, he hurries home to his confine. Confine here means, well, it can mean home, but usually what it means is something more like prison. So it goes back to where he is confined. And he, and he finishes, and of the truth herein, this present object made probation. So yes, I, he says, I've heard that, but of the truth herein, of the truth in this statement, this present object, this thing which we just saw right now, made probation, was proof. Marcellus says, it faded on the crowing of the cock. Some say that ever, against that season comes wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated, the bird of dawning singeth all night long. And so Marcellus is repeating that same information. Yeah, it faded when the rooster crowed. And he says, some say that ever, some people say that always, against, in other words, right before the season, wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated, in other words, Jesus' birthday, Christmas, so right before the season of Christmas, the bird of dawning, the rooster, singeth all night long. He's just singing and singing all night long. And then they say, no spirit dare stir abroad. The nights are wholesome. Then no planet strike, no fairy takes, nor witch hath power to charm. So hallowed and so gracious is the time. So when he says no spirit dare stir abroad, um, it's not like, oh, we're going off to different countries, although they're probably doing that as well. He doesn't move beyond that confine. He doesn't dare leave his prison house. The nights are wholesome. Wholesome here means not evil, you know, healthy. Nights are always sort of the devil's time. Um, and this is different during this season because the nights are actually healthy and wholesome. Then no planets strike. No planets are shooting their sort of evil fate rays. You know, the Elizabethans were big believers in astrology, among other things, and that your fate was dictated by your planets. But this is a time, like such a gracious time that the planets can't strike you with their evil fate. Um, no fair, So fairy here isn't just like, you know, Tinkerbell thing with wings, but it's any sort of supernatural being which could curse you. Takes means has power over you. Nor witch hath power to charm. We kind of know what that means. They believed in witches too. So hallowed and so gracious is the time. So hallowed here means holy. So gracious, sort of graced, sanctified. That's how holy and graced this time is. That none of those sort of magical otherworldly beings can do anything to you. And Horatio says, so if I heard and do in part believe it, in part is sort of loaded. It's like, well, yeah, I, I sort of believe some of that. He's believing a lot of things he didn't expect to believe before. And then we have a lighting cue. And you would think, well, they're outside. There's no lights. There's no set. How do they do a lighting cue? They do lighting cues in words. So after we've been talking about all this magical stuff, and it's the middle of the night, we know it was one o'clock in the morning. And then all of a sudden he says, but look, the morn in russet mantle clad walks o'er the dew of yon high eastward hill. 
it's this incredible poetic image and it's specifically designed i think to sort of quiet everybody there's been all this uh, ghost appearances and terrible talk about how things are going to go badly like they did in ancient rome somebody's going to get assassinated it can't go well but look the morn the morning in russet mantle clad a russet mantle is sort of like a reddish brown cloak it's as though the morning is wearing a cloak the color of dawn he walks o'er the dew of yon high eastward hill yon means sort of yonder over there but think about that image you know we sort of gloss over it because it's hamlet but he walks o'er the dew so the light itself is walking on top of the dew on the plants it's a beautiful image as though there's a person in a red cloak who personifies the morning who's just walking on top of the droplets of water on all the plants i think it's kind of beautiful and so after that sort of moment of quiet he says here's our plan break we our watch up and by my advice let us impart what we have seen tonight unto young hamlet Okay, now we're going somewhere. The play's called Hamlet. Nice to have a Hamlet in it. Break we our watch up. He isn't saying, let's break up our watch. He's saying, break we our watch up. It's a much stronger phrase. So this time that we've been staying up to watch and see what happened, we're going to break it up. And by my advice, so he's saying, is, I advise us to uh, let us impart what we have seen tonight. Let's tell what we have seen tonight unto young Hamlet. Oh, we've got a young Hamlet in the play. The play's actually going somewhere. That's awesome. Young Hamlet, we take it, is the son of the guy we've just seen, old Hamlet. For upon my life, in other words, I swear by my life, this spirit, dumb to us, will speak to him. So dumb here isn't stupid. It's silent. It's wordless. It's like a dumb show. You can't talk. So this is a spirit. He's dumb to us, but he'll speak to him. In other words, he'll talk to Hamlet. So it's this nice parallelism of language. Dumb to us, will speak to him. And they go on with the plan. Do you consent we shall acquaint him with it, as needful in our loves, fitting our duty? Do you agree that we'll sort of familiarize him with what happened? As needful, it's something we need to do because of our loves, and it's fitting to our duty to him. And the nice thing about it is that they don't say anything. We assume they just nod their heads. Uh, Either that or somebody has a plan, we don't know about it. And Horatio says, let's do it, I pray. And I this morning know where we shall find him most conveniently. Pray means I beg you or I ask you. And this is a classic Shakespeare exit line. Because there isn't a time in a Shakespeare play where the sets are moved along, although that happens in modern productions, obviously. What he's doing is he's trying to drag you into the next scene, because the next scene is literally coming right on his heels. They're about to leave this stage. What they say is, we're going off to look for Hamlet. I know exactly where he is. Let's go. So the next time we see them in the play, they'll be coming straight from there. And so that's the end of scene one. But we know exactly what's going to happen in scene two. They're going to tell Hamlet. So if you want to find out where these guys are going, uh, go download part two of Clear Shakespeare Hamlet. You can find it all on clearshakespeare.com. And if you wouldn't mind, send me a little something by way of clearshakespeare.com slash support to make this all possible. I'll be back with part two. Bye.